Every sailor could agree on one fact. Had it not been for the captain, they would not have survived. The storm came suddenly, out of nowhere. In a matter of moments, boats had their hulls broken, decks were swamped, and sailors were floundering. But as quickly as the storm arose, out of the huge waves came the captain. And he manoeuvred his large vessel between the waves and he rescued one sailor after another. And before they knew it, all of the sailors were safely deposited on an island and the captain was giving them instructions. And this is what he said. He said, there are still more at sea. You stay here until I return. Build a fire using the trees of the island to keep yourselves warm but also to be a beacon for those who need safety. And of course, the sailors were happy and quick to oblige, and they set about the task of building a large fire, and then they waited, and they waited, and then they waited. And the longer they waited, the more their gratitude ebbed away. Their thankfulness turned into restlessness, and their appreciation for the captain morphed into aggravation with each other. No one could remember exactly when the argument started, but it had something to do with the captain's instructions. Did he say that we had to use trees only for the fire, or mostly trees? Some people thought that it would be okay to cut down some shrubs, some bushes and leaves and throw those in, but others said, no, no, he said trees only. And discussion led to opinion, led to dispute, that led to division. And so there became two fires on the island, the trees only fire and the trees mostly fire. And peace returned to the island, but only for a short time, until dispute broke out amongst the trees only camp. One day in conversation, no one's sure who, but someone said, I'm sure the captain wants us only to use cypress trees. After all, he gestured to a cypress tree when he was giving his instructions. But another said, but he was standing close to an elm tree. Another said, well, there are oak trees mainly on this island. And conversation led to opinion, and opinion led to dispute, and dispute led to division, and soon there were three more fires on the island. Elm only, cypress only, and the oak only. Things didn't go much better on the other side of the island with the trees mostly camp. They argued over the height of the fire and what exactly to make it up. And so they too divided. And in time, the island was dotted with small fires rather than one large fire. The captain, who had been watching from the ocean, shook his head and sighed. Now this is a story that Max Lucado uses to describe the modern church. You might have recognised that that's where we were going with that story. Jesus is the great captain, and he's on a rescue mission. And we've been rescued from drowning. And now that we're rescued, we have two basic functions, to keep ourselves warm, which means to gather together, and to grow in our faith, and to encourage each other, spur each other on. But the other core function of our faith is to help rescue others to share the gospel, to get it out there that Jesus died for them. Yet our tendency is for what? Distraction, distraction, and more distraction. 
and factions grow up and argument and splits, all these to distract us from the rescue mission. And we grow weary of the hard work that evangelism is. What do we long for? Well, comfort and ease, self-fulfillment. So we huddle around warm, cosy fires with other like-minded survivors throwing on just enough wood to keep us warm every Sunday. Meanwhile, the captain's instructions to build a big signal fire go largely unheeded. And though the captain looks on disappointed, he's not surprised. He's not surprised because this has been happening for decades and centuries. Even the first century church had a tendency to splinter, to become inward-looking, and become distracted. So we're not surprised to find New Testament passages that deal directly with distraction from the great rescue mission. And these passages are to spur us on, spur us on to the grand task of rescuing others and warming those who had been drowning that had been saved. And so we come to today's key passage, which we find in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, the next one another in our series. And so we find it here, verse 24 of Hebrews 10. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Now here we are commanded to spur one another on. Knowing how easily distracted we are, God commands us to spur one another on to love and good deeds. Knowing how wearying our lives are, God commands us to provoke others to love and good deeds. Knowing that our default is to let a few do all of the work where the many don't, God commands us to to provoke one another to good deeds, to love and good deeds. This is the antidote for a church distracted from its mission, to spur one another on so that we can be focused on loving God and sharing our faith for others. So what we're going to look at today is what spurring on is and how do we go about it, what qualities in us need to be developed so that we become good at spurring each other on. So first of all, what is spurring on? So what do you think of when we use the image spurring on? Well, some of you may not have given it any thought of all, but some of you, if you've had anything to do with horses, know exactly where that image comes on. When I think of the word spurring on and think about where it comes from, I think of a, of a cowboy mounted on a horse, spurring on his horse and disappearing in a cloud of dust. That's where the word comes from from the equine or the horse world. And so to spur one another on, we use this quite happily, even if we don't know that this is a horse term, it means to encourage and inspire, but with all, to move people on in the right direction, to give them that extra boost, to energise them so they don't fade in the final stages. Being spurred on is to be reinvigorated, to try harder, and with more purpose. It is to stir and to provoke, but to stir up and provoke in a good way and not an unpleasant way. And this spurring on can be as powerful as the farewell speech by the Old Testament hero Joshua. And so the Israelites have travelled through the wilderness for 40 years 
Moses has just passed away and they are on the Jordan River about to go into the promised land. And Joshua is aware that idol worship has crept back into Israel and he knows that if they carry these idols into the promised land that they will bring disaster on him. And so he says this, to spur them on in Joshua 24, he says, Choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Joshua is spurring on God's people to follow God with all their heart. Or we can be spurred on by something quite quietly, like a widow in the temple who gives her last two copper coins and then has to trust God to meet her needs. Spurring on can be as loud as a crowd cheering on a runner in an athletic meeting or cheering on their favourite sports team, whether it be the Black Caps versus Pakistan or your favourite netball team, whatever. Or it can be quiet as a hand on a shoulder or a note from a friend. Spurring on can be simple as a hug from a teenage daughter after a rocky time in the household. Spurring on can even be found in the workplace after a positive staff review when your boss has said, we value you, you're doing a great job, keep it up. There are so many ways that we can spur one another on. But what are the qualities that we need to foster in ourselves so that we can be good at that? You know, what does spurring on look like? Well, there are three verses surrounding Hebrews 24 that help to bring out what it is, what qualities make a good a person who is good at spurring one another on. So we're going to look at these three verses. And the first verse is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, where it talks about drawing near to God. Hebrews 10, 22, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. People who draw near to God are very good at spurring other people on. Now notice the two qualifications here. Let's just unpack this verse for a little bit. Uh, Drawing near to God wonderfully, but with a sincere heart and in full assurance. Now some people draw near to God with one or those, or both of those missing. God wants us to come with a sincere heart, but some have a calculating heart. Maybe they come thinking, what's the least I need to do to keep God happy? And then I can go on my own way. That's how some people approach prayer. Other people approach prayer with a feeble heart. We struggle into God's presence, hoping to secure forgiveness and then grab a blessing and then leave as quickly as we can. But here's the thing. God wants us to draw near to him with a sincere heart. A sincere heart, not a calculating or feeble heart. A heart that longs to thank God for his blessings. A heart that seeks blessings for others a heart that is more interested in praising and thanking God than our own worries and concern. Then there are some people who draw near to God without full assurance. In fact, they have little assurance. And their prayers are something like this, or they're thinking like this as they come to prayer. Does God even know I'm here? Is he even listening? Can I ever be forgiven? Will I escape final judgment? 
Maybe I'll just pray for one or two small things and hope that God may answer. No, 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 that's not a heart of assurance, is it? We don't approach God like this. We approach God because the word says that we are his children, whether we feel like it or not. If Jesus is our Lord, we believe that God raised him from the dead, then we become children, and that's how we approach God with full assurance. Once we do this, once we draw near to God with a sincere heart full assurance, we can then become wonderful at spurring others on. We are spurred on ourselves, and we can spur others on. Let me give you an example. A young man was studying at university, and he had a sense of call, a call to full-time ministry, but his parents were dead against it. And so the first two years at university, he, he majored in a secular topic. But after two years, he'd had enough, and so he changed the theology. But what, what was he going to say to his parents? He knew they would be so unimpressed. And one night, he found himself pacing around his dorm room, thinking, Lord, is this the right thing? Are you calling me or not? I mean, my parents love me. I mean, you know, they had my best interests in hearts. What am I going to do? Now, the church that he had come from, his home church, he had a lot of respect for the pastor and the elders, so he wrote them a letter. He knew that they were people who drew near to God. He knew that they were people that would seek God, so he wrote them a letter. And unfortunately, he wrote later wrote, he said, my letter missed the monthly meeting of the elders. So I had to wait for about four weeks for their reply. It was like forever. However, when the reply came, it was in the affirmative. They affirmed my sense of call to the ministry. He went on to write, I'm so grateful for the prayer that they put into my letter. The united conviction became an incredible encouragement to spur me on in the years of training and ministry that followed. Yes, because those elders had drawn close to God and that was their habit, they had the ability to spur this young man on, especially through those first few difficult years. And you may know the man himself. He was uh, Derek Prince. And many of us, uh, certainly of a certain generation, have been blessed by Derek Prince's books and writings and preaching. But because the minister and the elders took time to prayerfully consider the letter, because they had in the habit of drawing close to God and had full assurance in their heart, they were able to spur a very young Derek Prince on to follow Jesus. That's what happens as we drill close to the living God. So that's the first thing. Now, the second thing is is that we are to persevere in our faith, and we see this in verse 23. Uh, let us hold on unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Faithfulness, persevering. For those who feel like giving up, for those who have grown weary of loving the difficult, for those who feel that their good deeds have been wasted, when these people hold on to their faith unswervingly, we watch on and we are encouraged, motivated. We are spurred on when we see those people that are faithful and persevere in their faith. It's a little bit like meeting a sports hero, um, men and women who persevere in their codes till they are their best. And we know that nobody represents their country in any sport until they have persevered in their training. 
in our last church, we had a South African family who loved rugby. No surprises there. When the grandfather came out, they were excited to go to an All Blacks and Springbok test. Three generations, young lad, father, grandfather. I remember talking to them afterwards and saying what was it like, and they talked about this and that, but one thing that really struck them going to their first test in New Zealand compared to that in South Africa was how close they could get to the players compared to South Africa. They said, well, we stood with where the South African Springboks came off the bus, and they said, gee, they're big boys, <laughs> which they are, aren't they? And so, you know, in New Zealand, we can get close to our sports heroes at times. We can get close enough so that we can give them their fo- our phone and they'll take a selfie with us. Isn't that great? These sports heroes spurring on those young children. I don't know if you saw the the Black Caps Pakistan test 20, 20 match a couple of tests ago when Finn Allen, God, I think it was 136 not out, record score. Don't know if you noticed afterwards, but when he was fielding at the boundary, there were like a flock of seagulls around him. There were about 20 kids hanging over the picket fence. And so, and you could see that because sometimes the, the camera would show this, and that in between ball deliveries, he would turn around and start signing those little cricket bats. Isn't that nice? Yeah, isn't that wonderful? And so our sports heroes have this ability to spur on the young children. And they often will say things like this if they come to a, a school assembly. They'll say things, if you want to get to the top like I have, practice, practice, practice. On good days, practice. On bad days, practice. When you want to sleep in, get up and practice. When you want to stay up late with mates, drinking, don't. Go to bed early and practice. And they spur on the young people to be great athletes. Isn't that great? Well, let's transfer this to the church situation. Think of seasoned Christians who have faced major challenges in their faith and persevered. Now, I'm not just thinking of the Mother Teresas or the Billy Grahams or the Corey Teen Booms, and reading their books are great, but just think of people that you know, either people that are sitting in this room here today or people in churches that have influenced you because they have persevered and you know something of their story. And even though they are non-heroes in the eyes of the world, they become heroes for us because they have persevered and their perseverance spurs us on to do greater things to the Lord. So there's two things there. If you want to spur other people on, then draw close to God. That's not optional, by the way. <laughs> and then and persevere in your faith. And thirdly, thirdly, meet together regularly. It's very interesting that straight after the, the instruction to spur one another on, the writer of Hebrews says this, and I'll, I'll read the verse 24 and then flow into 25. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up the habit of meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. We spur one another on when we meet together regularly. Now we can call this the home advantage to introduce, introduce another sporting Metaphor. Now we know what the home advantage is, isn't it? It's the term that players and coaches and commentators give when sports teams play at their own home ground, their own stadium. 
And why is there a home advantage? Because the supporters, their supporters, greatly outnumber the opposition supporters and their cheering, the cheering of the supporters, spurs on the home team. It's statistical fact that teams win more games at home than on the road because of the spurring on. And so meeting together on a Sunday and in small groups or having a commitment to meet a, another Christian for a coffee and encouragement on a regular basis, that's the same function as a, as a home advantage. We come to cheer each other on in their face. Imagine coming here on a Sunday morning and it's start of the service and you look around and there are five other people and the preacher. How do you feel? Come in the next week, same time, and you can hardly find a seat because there are so many people. Now, how do you feel? feel really encouraged, don't you? And the preacher, I can tell you, is mightily encouraged. Now, we might not do a Mexican wave like they do in the stadium, and we certainly don't boo the rest. Certainly not, do we? But <laughs> there is a wonderful encouragement by just turning up on a Sunday or to your small group or to meet with that fellow Christian that you said, well, let's, let's have a coffee every fortnight. It's a tremendous encouragement to spur people on. Think about it. How many times have you come to church feeling pretty average? Maybe you've got a case of the blahs. It's just life's blah. Maybe you're struggling with work or children. You're struggling with bills or health. Maybe you're struggling in your faith and you're just disappointed with God or just feeling so tired. Yet once at church, God speaks to you. Not necessarily with an audio, audio voice, though, even though, again, it may be, but through the singing or the words in the prayer or the preaching or for the fellowship. Maybe you've sung that song a hundred times before, but today when you sing that line, it comes alive. Why? Because you did not neglect coming together and you came and you sung. Or you're sitting listening to the preacher and something the preacher says or really impacts you. It makes a difference. And you're encouraged. You're built up. Or over a cup of tea, you find yourself just enjoying the fellowship and your spirits are lifted. And so, because you did not neglect to meet together, your doubt falls away. Your worries become more in perspective and your faith is strengthened. You find yourself spurred on. Why? Because you have committed to attending a local church and a small group or meeting one-on-one -on -one with a Christian friend. Great reason to praise God, isn't it? Just turning up today is spurring on the people around you and is a tremendous encouragement. Now let's pull all this together. How are you at spurring one another on? How are you at spurring one another on? When it comes to drawing near to God, persevering in your faith and meeting together regularly. Now, because we do grow in these areas, and we're not perfect, but if we're making progress in each of these areas, we will find that not only are we spurred on ourselves, but we will be able to stir up and provoke others to love and good deeds. Amazing, isn't it? You see... Without this mutual encouragement, this cheering crowd that we are, now we are Presbyterian, so we don't do it particularly loudly, do we? <laughs> but because we are sitting next to each other, that is such an encouragement to us. 
And if we neglect these things, drawing near to God, persevering in our faith and meeting together, then we are more likely to forget our mission, which is to get that fire burning and to attract people to um, to Jesus. We're more likely to forget, only not only forget our mission, but to drift from our faith, may even fall away from our faith. Yes, unless we work hard to spur one another on, we are more likely to be distracted from our captain's instructions. Yes, because we are in a rescue mission and lives are at stake, those in the church and outside the church, then let us make a commitment to spur one another on. Let's pray.